counter-terrorist uh, expert Julia Ebner was last on LNL in April 2020 talking about her uh, book Going Dark, The Secret Lives of Extremists. Uh, that book involves some very gutsy research. Julia went undercover in the murkiest corners of the dark web and infiltrated a number of extremist groups, including neo-Nazis and jihadists. Now, these groups used to exist far out on the fringes of the political spectrum, but today their ideas are spreading, have spread at an alarming rate. So the intrepid Julia has gone back undercover to find out why, and the result is her new book, Going Mainstream, How Extremists Are Taking Over, and we're delighted that Julia can join us from London to tell us more. Julia, welcome back, and I wonder if you'd begin by reminding me how you got into this, uh, well, into devoting so much of your life to studying extremism. Yes, good evening, first of all. It's great to be back, to be back on the program. Um, I, I started out uh, doing research into terrorism and extremism back seven years ago when ISIS was just at the height of their power, recruiting foreign fighters from across the world, really, to join them in Syria and Iraq. But I was really interested in the societal consequences that this had, for, uh, especially for, for liberal democratic countries, where you could see that the... the the tensions, the societal tensions were rising and there were increasingly um, anti-Muslim and in general anti-minority resentments that started to spread and that could be exploited by the other side of the spectrum, by far-right extremists and of course also by uh, far-right populist parties. So I then um, started to look more at the far-right extremist side of the spectrum and I guess I just found it, I always also did academic or more analytical um, observations of, of these communities. And I actually just finished my PhD in Oxford, so I also have that academic re- side to my research. But I always found that it's the most um, revealing and the most um, interesting in terms of finding out more about the motivations of these people. Why is, that, why is someone joining an extremist group? when I actually infiltrated their networks and when I joined them on the inside. Okay, so Going Dark has a has a now a sequel in Going Mainstream. Briefly explain how the two books are related. Going Dark uh, was published at a different time. I would say we still lived in a very different time, of course, um, in 2019 or 2020 when uh, that was before the COVID crisis, before the Ukraine war, before the ongoing economic crisis, really, when most of the ideas that I talk about in the book were still really confined to the darkest corners of the internet and maybe to some secret meetups and Airbnbs, which I I sometimes joined undercover. Um, But it was really, it was more of a fringe phenomenon. And then when I uh, observed what happened in the last few years, I started to think this is actually starting to become a bigger problem, not just in terms of inspiring violence of the like of of the terrorist attacks that we've seen, of course, including the Christchurch attack and attacks across the world inspired by by those ideologies, but also um, could also pose a real threat to our democracies once these fringe views become more um, leak really into the public discourse and become more mainstream and normalized through that. And that's essentially what, um, I observed in this, in this latest book. 
I, for me, a personal turning point was observing the chat rooms um, from within, from observing the people who um, planned the Capitol riots in the U.S. on January the 6th. So I could really observe the lead up uh, to, to this event. And it was, it was quite scary to see how quickly it can happen, how quickly such a big attack on a democratic institution can take place on a massive scale. Now, you point out how the capital insurrection is one example of how extremism has gone mainstream. And you note that the Americans who were arrested in connection with that attack were not your uh, typical far-right extremists. I find this absolutely fascinating, your analysis on, well... Who was involved? Exactly. The the thousands of rioters who were arrested um, in connection with the Capitol riots did not really belong to any, most of them at least, the vast majority did not belong to any far-right extremist groups or to militia movements in the US. Many of them were just your average citizens who were very strongly in support of Trump, of course, and who had started to believe election fraud narratives, that everything was rigged, and essentially that the political system and the democratic dem- democratic foundations in the U.S. are being corrupted. You make so, the point that the yeah. mob was dominated by business owners, white-collar professionals, and uh, such as doctors, lawyers, engineers, even CEOs. And I didn't realise that only 7% of the arrested were unemployed. Yes, this was actually something that came out of a study that was conducted by the University of Chicago. Um, and there have been quite a few studies that now also showed how much support there is in the U.S. There were, of course, just, and I'm just saying just, but there were just a few thousand rioters on the ground trying to storm uh, or storming the U.S. Capitol. But there were many, many more and still are who are ideologically standing behind this um, this attack on democracy. So a study found that it's over 10 million people in the US who are ideologically supportive of the insurrectionist movement. And you also point out there have been similar attacks in other countries in Germany a few months before the capital insurrection. Our far-right extremists with QAnon-inspired uh, conspiracy theories uh, wanted to, uh, to storm the Reichstag. Exactly. That was uh, much less covered in the press, in the international press, but there was a very similar event on a, on a much smaller scale. But in Germany, you could really see that the patterns were the same. You had the same types of crowds um, using QAnon slogans, also using pro-Trump slogans, and then tailoring their conspiracy myths and narratives to the German context. But it was very similar in terms of even the the logos and the symbols uh, to to what we had what, to what we then saw in the U.S. And even in New Zealand, you of course had um, clashes in front of Parliament between QAnon um, protesters uh, and and the police. And yeah, even on a, on a bigger scale, you could also see uh, in in 2022 what happened in Brazil after Bolsonaro was not re-elected, how. Again, there was a very similar crowd that was um, really attacking the the Congress and, again, an attack on a democratic institution. So I would say this is something where we do see a pattern and it is becoming more frequent and that is concerning. This is LNL on RN and I'm talking to Julia Ebner about her new book, Going Mainstream, How Extremists 
are taking over. Julia, in your book, you talk about how misogyny is often a gateway into other extremist ideologies. Can you remind us about the incel movement? The incel movement is a misogynist movement that has often been tied to violence. It's it's short for involuntary celibates. So it actually originally started as a, as a kind of self-help forum on the internet in the early 2000s that people could go to when they were lonely, people who didn't find a romantic or sexual partner. But the forum has really politicized and radicalized to the point that it has now inspired a series of, of deadly attacks um, against women and really against against humanity, basically. I learned from you that the, the notion came from a woman called Alana. Yes, it was founded by a woman. And it's quite ironic to to think that today right now it's it's dominated of course by men only i was i had to adopt a uh, a male undercover identity to join their online networks this was a movement that i couldn't join offline simply because i'm not a man so i would have never been able to do that but they are uh, they are so um misogynist but their misogyny is is taking different i think they they draw different consequences from that they've met most of them have really given up all hopes they're what they call themselves blackpilled so they they're very nihilistic in their worldviews and many of them are more leaning towards suicide and you can see there's a toxic dynamic in the community where they then share uh, suicide manuals so there's also that risk of course that young people get get absorbed in that community and then um, and then commit suicide but other parts of the movement are more leaning towards homicide and, and violence against against others, basically against the demonized um, outgroup or the enemy, which is often women, but also good-looking men, or in their opinion, that's of course all, um, they, they believe there's a whole science behind what, what, what good looks are, but it's in the end, um, yeah, in the end they're really just upset at anyone who finds a romantic or sexual partner. And this can lead to quite uh, dramatic violence, can't it? It has, it has inspired um, attacks uh, in the US, in Canada. Uh, one of the most, um, most well-known cases was, and probably one of the first uh, cases was the Roger, the Elliot Roger attack in 2014, which is also uh, called the Isla Vista shootings. And then in 2018, there was a, a van attack in Toronto, um, and then later, yeah, ten now, people a were killed in, in that, were they not? Yeah, exactly. It was uh, yeah, it was a very, a very deadly attack. And then now, more recently, there was also an attack in the UK here, which also meant that there is now a higher awareness that this that this uh, ideology can also inspire attacks. And as you said, it also sometimes serves as a gateway into other extremist ideologies. Some of them then start to adopt white nationalist uh, ideas or start to adopt conspiracy myths um, where, they, where they do, if, if the starting point is that they see themselves as victims, it's always easier to then add additional layers of conspiracy myths or anti-minority resentment that then um, is added to it. Isn't it odd that a 22-year-old British youth, Jake Davison, can uh, identify so powerfully with Donald Trump? Yeah, it's uh, that has really been quite quite a surprising um, factor. It's true, 
I I did follow the the Plymouth shooting quite closely, and we now more and more also see a mix of of different ideologies and of different sources of ideological inspiration. It's what what the security services call salad bar ideology. That term has been kind of coined by the FBI director, but it really is true that both in what we see in online channels. Uh, of extremist communities, and also what what we then see in the attacks, that often perpetrators hold more than one ideology. So it's no longer easy to categorize categorize something as only far right or only jihadist or only misogynist, because often it's it's a mix of different different ideas. Now we're used to the notion of the celebrity influencer. Tell me about TikTok, uh, the TikTok cult of Andrew Tate. Andrew Tate is, of course, a major influencer in that in in the wider misogynist sphere. He's not really an incel because he's more in the he he's of course a completely different type of of person. He would be seen as as highly successful actually with women, so quite the opposite of an incel. But he has spread some of the same deeply misogynist, um, deeply dehumanizing ideas about women, and sometimes even uses the same language as as the incels. But what's what's um, scary now about Andrew Tate, and that's something I also describe in the latest book, is how he has managed to make misogyny cool again among the younger generations. Where it's almost there's almost a backlash against movements such as Me Too and against progressive feminist movements. And um, in even in schools, uh, teachers both in in the UK and in Germany and other countries have told me that they now see increasingly. Things like rape denial um, surface among their students, that that becomes an issue, or in general, misogynist ideas, glorification of, of Andrew Tate, because he is an influencer on TikTok who, who of course, has had millions of, of views and, and followers, especially in the very youngest generation. Well, there's a figure here of 12 billion views. Now, he's been denied this and that platform, but that doesn't seem to have uh, slowed his momentum. It's uh, yeah that he has of course been been arrested and he's now facing a court process, and I think there are more and more people who and especially parents and teachers who woke up to the fact that actually their children had been watching his content for quite some time without them realizing, because the problem is now with TikTok of course um, your children might be watching something and you don't even know who that person is and while everyone in school and everyone um, in that generation is already talking about this inf- was already talking about that influence long before he even made it to the headlines tell so me about this this yeah. whole alternative information ecosystem that's formed over the last few years uh, Julia we we could observe that there is uh, that in addition to the big tech platforms um, that that are being used uh, widely, like like the Google platforms, like YouTube, the Meta platforms, Instagram and um, and Facebook and Twitter, which of course is now called X, there is a whole alternative universe of of platforms that have emerged, um, sometimes in competition or in almost as a as a as an alternative offer to these mainstream platforms, very often under the banner of unlimited free speech, because, of course, in recent years, there have been more takedowns um, of of violent content, of extremist content on the big tech platforms. And that has prompted um, some free speech uh, warriors, but also, of course, extremists to 
basically migrate to, to these smaller fringe platforms, which we call the old tech universe. So there are now far-right alternatives for YouTube, like, for example, BitChute or Odyssey. There are alternatives to other social media um, outlets, for example, Gab and Parler have been around for some time. And you could see that there was almost a complete alternative universe taking shape that is also not as much being um, subjected to, to the national laws. For example, in Germany, you have an anti-hate speech law that covers the big tech platforms, but is not really is 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 not doing anything against even violent content on the smaller fringe platforms, and the same is true for many other countries. So, Julia, as you point out, this is exploited by extremists who know how to game the algorithms. Exactly. So very often they they would also coordinate some of their campaigns on these smaller platforms or on the encrypted messaging apps like Telegram or Discord. And then they would go onto the big platforms and exploit the algorithms, set up anonymous accounts and run a big campaign. And they know, of course, that their content, because it is, uh, because it is captivating, because we've always been drawn, as humans, we've always been drawn to bloody content, to incredible content, to apocalyptic content. Um, it is being prioritized in the algorithms because the the aim behind the algorithms is, of course, to 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 keep us on the platform for as long as possible. So anything that grabs our attention will be prioritized. Julia, I was talking to uh, American author Colin Dickey the other night about the history of conspiracy theories. In the course of your research, have you found examples of older conspiracy theories making their way into modern extremist narratives? Absolutely. I would say a lot of the conspiracy myths that are being spread today as part of the, the QAnon movement or as part of the conspiracy myths um, now that we have seen during the, the COVID pandemic have definitely echoed older conspiracy myths. That they have simply taken a different a different shape or been tailored to the to the current context. But for example, um, the fact that uh, QAnon is spreading the idea that the global elites are supposedly Satanists who are drinking the blood of, of young children to stay young, that is, of course, something that has been very similarly circulated um, in, in the early 20th century when anti-Semitic ideas about, again, also uh, Satanism and about blood-drinking elites became uh, more prominent. And yeah, the same is true for, for other ideas. And it's also interesting because it also follows a historical pattern of during times of crisis, we've always seen an emergence or a rise in anti-minority conspiracy myths. So even during the time of the plague, the idea spread that Jews had poisoned the, well, poisoned the wells. Or during the times of the cholera, the idea circulated that doctors were actually trying to do organ harvesting um, so now what we saw in, in the COVID pandemic was actually an echo or was a rhyme to that, to those conspiracy myths in some way. What do you think can be done to uh, counter the mainstreaming of extremist ideas, Julia? I think one of the most important starting points is to reconquer language that has been conquered by the extremist fringes and 
has now um, to some extent been been normalized um, for that use also by by far right populist politicians. So words like democracy, freedom, human rights, they have really been um, been able to be hijacked by um, by people who are actually campaigning exactly against them. It's in in a very paradoxic way. Or words like diversity, multiculti, they have been associated now with negative, um, or the same is true for feminism to some extent. They now have deeply negative associations in the heads of many people. And that's to some extent because of the successful campaigns of far-right actors who've completely twisted their original meaning. And um, I think so one of the starting points is language, because also the mainstreaming um, that we can observe often starts with language. When politicians start to use terms that I previously only saw in, yeah, in, in extremist forums, like, for example, um, like, for example, cultural Marxism, uh, which is, is actually has an anti-Semitic undertone, which is actually a conspiracy myth originally, but many politicians have now increasingly made use of that term knowingly or not knowingly or talking about an invasion for example in the context of the UK um, migration from from the channel from from Europe towards the UK that there was um, that politicians used the word invasion this is something that that is being used usually by the extremist fringes and I would say that there is a lot of awareness raising and educational aspects that um, could still help to to yeah, foster resilience in the wider society against the exploitation of extremist narratives and their normalization. Now, Julia, what role should uh, tech companies play in combating extremist content? Tech companies um, should, of course, play a bigger role than they are already many of them are already um, trying to do their best and actually a lot of things have changed in recent years but um, I think it's it's a very difficult question because of course it's a fine line for them to walk that they are not accused of censorship that they remove the most harmful and violence inciting content but at the same time manage to keep up freedom of speech but I guess one of their, the, the, the main problems that they need to tackle is the algorithms. And that's still the case because their business models are still, unfortunately, running on the basis of exploiting us as our psyche, as human beings, how our psychology works. And I guess I'm not sure that will change. I'm not sure that will change anytime soon. But I, I still see that as the biggest problem. Not really specific content that needs to be taken down um, because it's always a cat and mouse game where content is being taken down, new content is being created. But the algorithms are something more persistent and something more systematic to tackle. Thanks for that, uh, Julia. Julia Ebner is a senior research fellow at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, the author of several books. Her latest is uh, Going Mainstream, How Extremists Are Taking Over, and it's published by Ithaca Press. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.